The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode, I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Controlling history is key to the Chinese Communist Party's control of the country. Whether it's playing up the century of humiliation or whitewashing past mistakes like the Great Leap Forward or the Tiananmen protests, the party expends huge effort and resources on controlling the narrative. That's why it's so important and interesting to look at those Chinese people who are documenting the bits of history that the party doesn't want you to know about. They interview survivors from communist labour camps or keep their own memoirs of the Cultural Revolution and try to keep the memory of past horrors alive through film, magazines, art. A new book called Sparks documents their work. Its author is Ian Johnson, a Pulitzer Prize-winning author and longtime China journalist. Ian calls these people the underground historians. I'm delighted to say that Ian is on the podcast today to talk about Sparks. Ian, welcome to Chinese Whispers. Um, It's my pleasure. Now, your book is all about the underground historians in China and their battle against uh, the Chinese Communist Party's official narrative. But I think to understand why the underground historians are so important, we need to understand first the official history, why it is that the Chinese Communist Party sees history as so important to bolstering its rule. Because I think that's something that maybe in democratic countries, having an official narrative isn't as important. So can you explain just how important that is? Yeah, of course, every country has its myths and, and founding stories, and history is contentious in, in almost every country in the world today. In China, it's arguably more important because the Communist Party's justification for ruling China is that history brought it to power. In this telling of history, China was laid low in the 19th century, the Opium Wars, etc., and there were well-meaning patriots in the 19th century, the first half of the 20th century, who tried to save China, but it was only the Communist Party that was able to do it in 1949, unite the country territorially, throw out the foreign invaders, and set the country on the path to prosperity. Of course, there's an element of truth to this, but the in the party's way of telling it, it's also linked to this idea of performance legitimacy, that because the party has done such a great job in running the country over the past almost 75 years now, it should be able to continue to run China. And therefore, the history of the past 75 years has to be sanitized. And the problems, the very many crises, the great famine, etc., have to be eliminated from the historical record or so sanitized that they don't pose a threat to the party's right to rule. And I think at one point in your book, you also suggested that the party also learned from the USSR's fall because uh, Xi Jinping certainly thought that the USSR's dissolution in the 90s was because they allowed alternative histories. Yes, in his view, Gorbachev was almost a traitor and that his biggest mistake was Glasnost. Glasnost allowed for these alternative visions of the Soviet Union, which had already been circulating in the late 60s and 70s through underground Zamazdat publications. These people then got a real voice and a platform in society. 
groups like Memorial were allowed to investigate the uh, crimes of the Stalin era, the mass graves, etc., were exhumed. And because of that, in his view, in Xi Jinping's view, people in the Soviet Union, including top officials and, and Communist Party members, no longer believed in the country's own stories and its own ideology, and it felt like a house of cards. And as he put it in one talk, he said no one was man enough to just say no and put their foot down in 1989, 1990, and prevent the country from being dissolved. And he doesn't want the same thing to happen to China. And I think that he saw that was happening in the 2000s when this underground history movement began. Mm. And so he wanted to stop it, nip it in the bud and crush it before it could grow further. Mm. But there are clearly limits to how much he can nip that because you've got enough material here for an entire whole book, which is fabulous. Tell us about these underground historians. Who are they and what kind of work are they doing? Yeah, so I started the project after Xi Jinping took power. And the way I defined it was I wanted people who were active in the Xi Jinping era. So there are other people who've done amazing work uh, like the... Uh, historian Yang Jisheng, who wrote a book called Tombstone about the Great Famine. But he was mainly active in the 2000s, in the late 1990s, when Chinese archives were open. You could actually go into there and get documents and data. By the 2010s, that was essentially no longer possible. So I, although I reference Yang Jisheng and people like that, I'm looking at people who are working today. They are people who are still publishing underground magazines, making underground documentary films, and publishing books. Um, the magazines are published as PDFs, and they're emailed to other people, so they're not usually printed, but they have a bit of reach uh, among educated people. And so although the public platforms for these unofficial historians has diminished in the Xi Jinping era. They're no longer independent documentary film festivals, for example, but they are still able to spread around among the intelligentsia and educated people in China. And what are some of the topic areas that they're looking at? What are the truths that they want to get out there? It starts in the pre-1949 era. At the, from the beginning of the Communist Party, they want to explain crucial turning points that the party views as heroic, such as the Yan'an period, which is when the Communist Party was holed up in northwestern China during the war against Japan. It's portrayed as this period when people from around China gathered there and formed this band of patriots that ended China's misery in 1949 by winning the Civil War. Many of them show that it wasn't like that at all. There was a series of power struggles, and they've uh, written definitive histories of that period based on their own uh, archives that they've created themselves and oral histories and, and things like that. So it starts even before 1949, and it goes all the way up to the present. It's not necessarily events from the last century, like the Great Famine or the Cultural Revolution. It includes the COVID crisis. There were independent citizen journalists who rushed to Wuhan in 2020 to make records, and there were, many of them were arrested and silenced, but there are others who continue to write, including one of the main characters in my book, the independent journalist Zhang Xue. Uh, she wrote posts, many posts that went viral about the whole COVID protests and lockdowns and things like that. What drives these people intellectually? Because I was taken by how many of these underground historians, especially those in early generations before the Xi Jinping era, how, how many of them were true believers in communism and sometimes actually criticised the Maoist regime for not sticking to the letter of communism enough, for not sticking to the idea of equality enough. So I wondered if you can talk about what the intellectual basis 
analysis of these historians are. Are they traditional liberals in a Western sense, or are they questioning the state from a different angle? It's hard to generalize on for so many different people because some everyone has their own motivation. I think there are maybe two main points that are worth considering. One is that almost everybody got involved or almost all of these people got involved in the counter-history movement because of something that occurred to them personally. It may have been that they were uh, persecuted in a political campaign, or they saw the famine, or their family, some members of their family were persecuted for some uh, reason, or they saw the COVID crackdown and wanted to write about it, etc. So they're it's a trigger usually when they, most of them grew up in the communist era. They were, if you want to say brainwashed or they bought into the system early on. And then something happened when they realized that the matrix around them was not whole, that there were warps in it, and that the reality that they'd been fed, that they'd been taught in school was not the whole story and that there was more to it. And then they begin investigating and that leads them down this path of realizing that there are problems in society and that they need to be exposed. So I think there's that that aspect of it. And the other is that they're almost all motivated by, I would say, sort of Chinese, traditional Chinese values and ideals. It's not really that they are exposed to Western ideas. Almost none of the people I write about in the book have studied abroad. None of them speak English, really. Um, certainly not, a couple of them speak a little bit of English. But in other words, they're not really foreign, educated, or influenced by Westernization and this kind of thing. They're much more inspired by traditional Chinese ideas such as righteousness, mm-hmm. yi, or justice, zheng yi. So I think they feel that that is the sort of thing that is lacking, and I think it's also a an idea that is not so. It doesn't open them up to accusations of being unpatriotic. They can say everybody's for justice; we are too, and therefore it's easier to win allies that way. When you say we're just trying to stand up for these people who died in a famine, we're just trying to tell their story. We don't have any other political agenda. Now, some of them do have more of a political agenda than that, but it's something that at least many. I think they all share those ideas, even if they were true believers when they were growing up. And can you talk a little bit more about that? What you mean by that traditional Chinese basis for questioning authority? I was interested is that you start your book with an anecdote about a Song Dynasty poem written by Su Dongpo, who was railing against the authoritarian emperor of his time. I mean, I think many people are guilty of thinking that Chinese intellectual history doesn't provide space for questioning authority, what with Confucianism and so on. And I've certainly been guilty of this in the past. So, what do you mean by this indigenous Chinese way of questioning authority? To some degree, it is the Confucian tradition because the Confucianism is an ideology that's independent of the ruler. So Maoism was quite a break. Maoism is, the leader is Mao, and he has his ideology Maoism, and you have to follow it. So the leader and the ideology are one and the same. Confucianism was developed, as we know, by Confucius. It has these ideas, yes, you have to follow authority, but also authority owes things to you. And there is the right to rebel in Confucianism, that if the ruler is not doing a good job or the dynasty is not doing a good job, you have the right to overthrow it. So that's part of the Confucian ideal also, that it's a two-way street. It's not just unquestioned obedience to the top. There is a feedback there's, there's mechanism. There's feedback. Yeah, they, they owe you something also. And if they're not doing a good job, you have the right to criticize or, or to remonstrate. So this is what officials did throughout Chinese history. And some of the most popular folk heroes, such as we all may be familiar with the Dragon Boat Festival, and that has its origins in a Chinese poet, Qiyuan, who uh, 
protested against the emperor's decisions that cost the country's uh, independence, and he committed suicide. So ultimately, this is what the story is, is about. The dragon boats are just something sort of tacked on to. But, but um, the dragon boats are a celebration of Chuyen, right? Because yeah. they're looking, they're, I think the story that I heard growing up is that they're throwing these zongzi, uh, rice parcels, into the river so that the fish are eating that instead of Chuyen himself. So yes. there's people, right. grassroots, coming out in support of this person who dared to tell truth. Yes, yeah, exactly. Or the first great historian of China, Sima Qian, he was uh, persecuted by the emperor and suffered greatly in order to complete his history. And so these are the sort of heroes of Chinese history. It's not the emperors who misrule is criticized. It's the people who stood up to them. And the word hero is something I want to touch on as well, because there's a notion um, that you, I think you, you explain quite well in your book called Jianghu, which I think it's still, you know, it's still hard for someone, you know, not growing up in the Chinese context to understand what that exactly that means. Ian, I'm going to let you have a stab at it, but I do think, you know, this idea of Jianghu, this idea of righteousness is very important to, to kind of, if we can help, somehow help our listeners understand how that plays into all of this. Yeah, Jianghu literally means rivers and lakes, and this is meant to be the area beyond the control of Chinese civilization. So it's beyond the cities, the courts, the agricultural-based uh, society. It's out in the wilderness. It's a bit like Sherwood Forest and Robin Hood. So you but have, it's not a physical place. It's not a physical place, although there are these great stories such as The Water Margin or All Men Are Brothers, depending on the translation, which tells about people like that, these sworn brotherhoods where they are standing up for true the true values of Chinese civilization they are the true patriots even though they are beyond the pale they have been um, marginalized by society they're the real heroes so people will have this idea the counter historians today will sort of say oh I'm Jianghu which can also mean a little bit like I'm a bit of a hooligan and I'm a bit uh, a bit of a rogue or but I'm also I've got this sense of justice and yeah. righteousness that I'm standing up for Robin Hood is a very good analogy, actually, because it's when you see politics being unjust and injustice and morality becomes kind of the, the prerogatives of your average people. And they, they might not be doing legal things, but they're doing righteous things. So, so, that, so that's how the historians see themselves. Is that right? Yes, very much in that tradition. They talk about that quite often. And I think this idea of sworn brotherhoods, sisterhoods, it's quite it's quite telling because the movement I'm talking about is not an organized movement with uh, bylaws or, mm. or structure, but these people all know each other. And I thought it was quite telling that when one of the chroniclers of the Wuhan lockdown, when she arrived in, in Wuhan in 2020, the first person she went to go see was another character from my book, Ai Xiaoming, who is a well-known feminist scholar and documentary filmmaker who is well-known in the counter-history movement, and she went and stayed with her for a couple of nights just to get her self-oriented uh, in Wuhan. So they, they know each other, they help each other when they can, and they are some sort of a, un, uh, some sort of a loose group of, of people. That must be quite important to have that solidarity when what you're doing is so against the grain. And at Perhaps huge personal danger to yourself as well. What I was struck by was um, the inspiration for your book title, a magazine called Spark, uh, written in the last century, and how that inspired modern historians to think, oh gosh, there is solidarity, there, there are more of us there. You can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, the title of the book comes from this magazine called Spark, which comes from a Chinese idiomatic expression, a single spark can start a prairie fire. This is a magazine uh, that a group of students who were exiled to Western China started in 1960. 
They saw the Great Famine, and they decided that leaders didn't know about it. So they, if only the leaders knew, they would help uh, solve the problem. So they got a hold of a mimeograph machine. They made, they wrote essays and articles, which by today's standards, for our eyes today, are very contemporary. They're very current. They're not about ancient stuff from the last century. They're about the issues, the fundamental issues that face China today. Stuff like? Well, lacks of check check and balances in an authoritarian state, uh, leaders having absolute power, lack of freedom of speech, the fact that farmers don't own their land still, and that the state owns basically all, every square inch of territory in the PRC. Uh, They also wrote about corruption, why there's endemic corruption in China, which is interesting because one of Xi Jinping's signature policies is is anti-corruption campaign. They're always fighting corruption. They, They... Put it down to systemic problems in one-party rule. So they wrote this. They were immediately rounded up. 43 people were, were arrested, in fact. Three of them were shot. The rest were sent to labor camps. And it would have just died out, probably, as one of these many small, quixotic efforts at, at, at uh, fighting the system, except that after the Cultural Revolution, some people in China were allowed to look into their personnel files as part of the party's efforts to make amends for this uh, horrible period. One of them was a, a member of Spark. She had survived the labor camps. Uh, she was now nearing retirement. She got into her personnel file and she took pictures of everything. And this included a good bureaucratic state like China. Every issue of Spark, all the essays, included many things, personnel files, confessions, even the love letters that she wrote to another member of Spark. She made photos of all of this. And in the 80s and 90s, this just sat in her apartment. She was now had now moved back to Shanghai, where she originated, and would have just stayed there, except for the advent of basic digital technologies, things that we take completely for granted today, especially the PDF. So she was able to create PDFs out of this with the help of friends, and it began to circulate a bit not exactly word of mouth, but it was slow. It's just emailing to somebody else, to somebody else. But because it's a PDF, it's a lot easier to spread than, say, in the Cold War and the Soviet Union, that where you're typing something out in quadruplicate with carbon paper, and then you don't, you know, it's very, very difficult. In this case, you could just email it to people, and it began to spread. The the well-known Beijing critic, uh, Sui Weiping, she's also the translator of Havel into Chinese. When she read that, she said, now we have our genealogy. Mm. It was a sort of aha moment, like, my goodness, 50, 60 years ago, there were people struggling with the same issues we're faced with today. And that's incredibly empowering. And I think it created it creates this collective consciousness, this collective memory among a certain class of people of a struggle against authoritarianism in a way that hadn't existed in China previously. And it's deeply ironic that the reason that this spark has taken uh, has ignited again is because of the state's own keeping of records. You know, that's, that's so ironic, as you say, a good bureaucratic thing. <laughs> and, and, and it's because of them. And something else related to that is for censorship to work, and this comes up again and again in your book, is that the state censors need to know what is sensitive. In order to know that, surely they must know some level of what true history looks like. You know, what are the darkest secrets of the great famine that you cannot let anyone talk about? For the censor to know that, to be able to censor, he must know what it is. Yes, that's true. On some level, the state operates through simple guidelines. The Internet Administration of China issues lists of forbidden topics that you simply can't bring up. But there are people who must be above that who know why it can't be brought up. So some some of these are myths like... um, 
that the long march was exactly 10,000 li, which is what, like 3,000 kilometers or something like that. If you challenge that and say, well, actually, they didn't walk that far, even even if you say, well, they walked 2,800 kilometers instead of 3,000, that's not allowed. It's got to be exactly that amount. Or that Mao didn't write all of his poems. There's one rumor that one of his secretaries wrote the poem Snow, which is one of his most famous poems, or that his son died in the Korean War because he was a glutton and cooked fried rice, the smoke from which gave away his position to enemy airplanes, and the Americans bombed and killed him. He did die in the war, that's for sure. Yeah. Now, whether he did that because he made fried rice or not isn't that, but you can't, isn't maybe that significant. And some of these are laughable individually, but they're all part of the party wanting to keep its mythology intact, and they viewed that any any effort at challenging that is the thin edge of of a, of a wedge that could break apart this whole house of cards. Mm. And to what extent is the progress of the under, underground historians able to be made because of this brief window of openness, as you say? You know, reform and opening did come with a little, little bit of civil society opening, at least archives were opened. The internet came along, allowing things like emailing PDFs. To what extent is that window now closed? The the window for things like uh, archives and getting official information that could challenge the party, that has definitely closed. However, the ability of people to go out and conduct oral history interviews and to connect with groups and information that's available overseas has not diminished. There's still many, many people, for example, who use VPNs, virtual private networks, a kind of software that allows you to bypass the sensors in China and give you the full experience of the internet. So it gives you access to all sorts of data and information that you can find in Western research libraries or whatnot. So that sort of thing is still there. Um, We rightly, I think, focus quite often on the surveillance state and how Mm. the government has this awesome machine of control. It's true that probably 95 or more percent of the population does not have VPNs, but even if it's just 1%, and I think that would be conservative, that would still be about 14 million people. And as we saw last year in the protests against COVID, the so-called white paper protests, there are a significant number of people who act as gatekeepers who can get data, get information. For example, they take videos outside mm. of uh, protests, they upload it to YouTube or and to Twitter. Tw- yeah, and Twitter accounts, and then it gets downloaded again in China. So that shows that even though you don't have huge percentages of the population that have access to this information, change in any society often starts with small groups of people who are able to influence the public mm. debate and discussion. And those people definitely do exist in China. Mm. And one thing that has closed as well, though, is, is Hong Kong, you know, the freedom of Hong Kong, which you, you, you write about in your book about how people could take books back from Hong Kong that were freely published, pamphlets and things like that. But now, of course, that's not possible. Hong Kong was a big loss when the national security law passed in 2020 that essentially brought all of Hong Kong law in sync with mainland law. So it made it very risky for people to publish these underground historians, many of whom had published in Hong Kong before. In fact, one of the vignettes in that I have in the book, I have the, the main chapters, and between the chapters are these vignettes. One of them is about these warehouses that had to be closed down. I got a letter from a well-known, an email from a well-known publisher who said that his friends who own these warehouses were now worried that the books they couldn't just they weren't just forbidden from selling the books but they 
were afraid that even owning the books was dangerous. So some Hong Kong business people who had money paid for the books to be sent abroad. I got hundreds of the books and passed them off to research libraries in the West. But it is a big loss, Hong Kong. And yet I today there's more people who are able to self-publish. And I think having the a physical copy of the book is not so important, really. So mm. they can still do that. There's a lot more interaction also with overseas Chinese communities in Europe, in North America, in Japan, and Korea that I also don't believe existed, say, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, 30 or 40 years ago, the easiest way to get rid of a dissident was to exile them. Mm. Say, okay, Wei Jingsheng uh, was one of the people in the Democracy Wall movement. We're sending you off to New York. And so he went to the United States and sort of dropped off the face of the earth. He was no longer a factor. But the younger people who are involved today are, are often quite savvy. Uh, they're able to connect with groups back inside China. For example, one of the gr magazines that I write about, Remembrance, uh, it's been going for 15 years. I just got copy 343 emailed to me the other day. It's now supported by overseas Chinese scholars in the United States, in fact, in Texas, who help lay out the magazine and keep some of the articles safe and then send it back into China. So it's still written primarily by mainland uh, academics, but it's got sort of back-end support in mm. North America. So I guess the ecosystem has changed. Some things have shut down, but there are other new avenues. Yes, I believe so. You can see that also in many big Western country or cities like London and New York, San Francisco, there are many salons, democracy salons or discussion salons for young Chinese people, overseas students. It, of course, there's still surveillance of them by student groups here, but they are very interested in what's going on in their country. And they're inspired in a way by, say, the white paper protests mm -hmm. and want to find out what are the what are the problems in, in my country and in a way that I don't think was the case so much five, ten years ago. Ian, how safe are these historians? I mean, their work is incredibly dangerous. You've already mentioned people who were shot for getting involved with Spark, that magazine. Presumably the authorities must know something like this is happening. And if they do, people might think that if the state knows about it, they'll just get shut down or punished. How are they able to get away with what they do? The state mainly focuses on impact. So they control social media. This is why the idea that the internet would be the source of freedom that would be uncontrollable, etc., etc., are quite fashionable in the 1990s, not just among Westerners, but even Chinese intellectuals like Liu Xiaobo. This idea was clearly doesn't work. The state can control the internet. I think they feel that if people are working on stuff in the privacy of their living room, that it won't influence other people. So they tend to just focus on people who are publishing. If you, and some of the people I write about, uh, like the journalist Jiang Shui, she's had about eight WeChat accounts. So she has Jiang Shui one, Jiang Shui two. <laughs> Jiang Shui. I can never sort of keep up with it. I said, well, how many followers do you end up with every time you have to have a new, a new account on, on WeChat? But she still will, uh, she'll, she'll do it initially just because she needs to have a WeChat account to pay her bills because everything is run through this one app, right? But then eventually she just can't resist it and she'll repost something or write something and then get shut down again. So those people who are very high profile, they are closed down. Mm. But the I'm describing a movement that involves at least tens of thousands of people across China. So it's not so easy for the government to go after all of them. I think we sometimes think that the surveillance state is some magic wand, and, and perhaps in the future with AI it will become like that. But at least it's, it's still right now very labor-intensive. So 
to to watch somebody in China requires many people. So the government finds it more effective just to shut down their avenues of communication to the broader public. It's always had this policy of censorship that the things that were the most heavily censored were movies, for example, and then television, and then radio. Really mass media. Yeah, mass media, newspapers. And, and this, I'm sort of describing them almost in diminishing amounts of censorship. At the very bottom would be academic articles, which are just read by specialists. And then they would say, well, you can say more things there than you could say in a television show. So these people are even maybe further off the radar screen of the government. Again, people who are very well known, they do come in for harassment. The famous uh, documentary filmmaker Hu Jie, I describe him in the in the book, he has had the experience over the past few years where he sets up an appointment with somebody, drives to see them, and they open their front door and say, it's not convenient to talk, close the door. Clearly, somebody's gotten to that person and said, if you want your kid to go to college, um, it would be better if you didn't talk to Hujia or something like that. And so they're they're given pressure and they, they don't talk. And so it makes it difficult for people like Hujia to do their work. But those are really the top and the most famous of the people. The rest of the people seem to be able to keep going about doing their, their business, such as this journal Remembrance. Do you worry that by writing this book in the English language as well, that you're exposing them in the West? Because, you know, on that point about impact, one of the things that the Chinese government does care about impact-wise is its portrayal in the West. Do you worry that by writing this book, by celebrating their work, that you're exposing them a bit? I do worry about that. I was concerned when I was writing the book. Uh, that's why I went to talk to all of the people involved and talked to them many times, whether they felt comfortable or not going public, and had conversations up to last year about that. And most recently, I went back in May to China, talked to people, and mostly overall, they were just thrilled. Uh, some people wanted to be anonymized. Uh, some people didn't want to be in the book, and uh, of course, I respected that. But it wasn't a problem to get people to talk or to go on the record. And Ian, I think what's particularly important about these people is that with each generation, you might have your own lived experience of Chinese Communist Party's horrors. But unless you write them down, unless you have some method of passing them on to the next generation, the official history then gets rewritten, you know, by the party, um, which sanitizes the previous generation. And it goes on and on and on such that, you know, someone like me born in the 90s, I learned so much about the Great Famine and about the Cultural Revolution through your book. Things that I never knew and certainly was never taught about in school. Whereas, of course, I have seen the COVID years. So it seems to me that the party is so effective because it keeps refreshing its own history as well. Yes, there was a very well-known essay by the dissident astrophysicist Fang Lijie that I quote in the book called China's Amnesia. He talks about how every 10 years... Uh, the the party is able to suppress knowledge of the previous 10 years. So he was thinking, he wrote this essay in 1990, and he was thinking of the Tiananmen students, and he said they weren't aware of the democracy wall movement Quite. students from 78. The 78 students weren't aware of the Cultural Revolution students in the 60s, and the 60s students weren't aware of people like the Spark movement in the 50s. So he says this way the party is able to erase history effectively. That is true, but I think the change is that we do have much more access to knowledge so that if you aren't aware of something, it's much easier for somebody to give you a download of information. One of the main characters in the book, Zhang Xue, 
had this experience when an academic asked her if she was aware of Spark. And she said, no, I'm not. He sent her an email with the 500-page PDF. And immediately, boom, she had this data download that would be impossible to imagine in earlier generations. So that it is harder to keep this amnesia. And it's harder, or I think it's impossible, they have failed in preventing a, a certain group, a significant group of public intellectuals from knowing about this. 30 years ago, 40 years ago, if you were aware of all of these things, you were probably just one of a few hundred people in mm. the country who were some sort of elite intellectuals, maybe well-connected to the senior party leadership, maybe living in Beijing, Shanghai, and a few other, a couple of other big cities. Now this movement is much more widespread. You have people, you go to almost any small city, and there are people who are reading Remembrance or these other magazines and journalists and pe people who are just familiar with all this information in a way that wasn't imaginable a generation ago. You sound fundamentally optimistic about the direction of travel. I think in the current context where we tend to view China as a black hole of dystopia, however you want to portray it, I, I come across as a little bit optimistic perhaps, but it's not so much that the glass is, is half full, it's just that the glass has a bit of water in the bottom of it, and I'm just trying to show that. And there's a bit of a challenge to civil society in the West as well, because I would like us to embrace these people mm -hmm. a bit more and bring them over to our film festivals, have retrospectives of their work, which has not happened. Uh, I'd like publishers to translate more of their works, which really hasn't happened in the way that happened for Central and Eastern European intellectuals in the Cold War. We were very, some of those people from that era were household names among educated people in the West in a way that is not true for Chinese intellectuals today. And I think that's unfair. And I hope this book goes a small way toward correcting that. Well, just finally, Ian, where can people find more things to find this, this this body of work that the underground historians are doing? Because some of it is on YouTube, isn't it? But tell, tell us more where people can find if they want to really see for themselves. I am launching a website called China Unofficial Archives. The URL, perhaps you can put in the notes mm -hmm. to this show, but it's M-I-N Minjian, M-I-N-J-I-A-N dash Danganguan, D-A-N-G-A-N-G-U-A-N dot org. We have seed money from a foundation to collect all of this information, all of the issues of these underground magazines, classic works, and, and also films and vlogs things like that. It's a free open site, does not require registration. These are works that are in the public domain, so we're not ripping off anybody's IPR. If a book is on sale, um, such as Yang Jisheng's Tombstone, we're not offering that PDF download of that, although you can probably find that on the internet. But we're offering, it's, it's a curated site, it has a description in English and Chinese uh, for each item. We now have over a thousand items. If you go to the URL now, you'll just see a placeholder saying this is the future site of blah, blah, blah. But um, you can check back sometime later this month and we'll have it. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Ian Johnson. Pleasure to have you on the podcast. Mine too. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chinese Whispers. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're listening to this podcast on the Best of the Spectator channel, remember that Chinese Whispers has its own channel as well. If you just search Chinese Whispers wherever you get your podcast from, you will always get the latest episode first there. If you have any feedback, positive or negative, but preferably constructive, please do email me at podcast at spectator.co.uk. And I'd also love it if you left a review or told your family and friends about the podcast. It's the way to help us grow. So thanks so much for listening and join us again next time. Bye.